As we think about the book of Hebrews today, I want to thank God for what He did during the Reformation. Yes, there was a lot of abuses and corruption and, and stuff we don't agree with. Of course there was, but we do praise God for His work. And, I, and you say, why, why praise God for the Reformation? Well, there's many reasons, and, and I want to just talk about one from the book of Hebrews today. You see, the Reformation called the church back to faith in Christ as the only mediator between God and men. Of course, the Bible says so in the book of Timothy that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and men. We don't need a, a go-between or a priest or a pope or any other human being like that as a go-between or a mediator because we have Jesus who is now our high priest. See, the problem was during many centuries leading up to the Reformation, which if you might think of the Reformation as kind of starting around uh, the year during the 1500s, 1530s in particular, the Roman Catholic doctrine was teaching things like that there's a purgatory, there's this go-between place between hell and heaven. And they taught that that in this purgatory, souls were detained, and they could actually be uh, helped on their way to heaven by your prayers. Uh, they also believed that saints were to be revered, and, and by saints we mean the, the, the really holy Christians. They, they were revered, and you could pray to them, and, and they could help you out. And, and they had all these uh, relics, you know, pieces of the cross or bones of the apostles, or whatever it might be in various places around the world. And those relics were honored and given great uh, prominence in glass cases, and people would come and pray to these, and it's like they were worshiping these relics. And, of course, there came the doctrine of Mariology, where Mary, the mother, mother of Jesus, was prayed to because because she's the mother of Jesus, you pray to her because she tells Jesus what to do. You say, do people actually believe that? Yes. And so these teachings, of course, are false, but they were believed by many, and they were taught around the world. On the other hand, along came the Reformers, and they taught that salvation was by Christ's work alone. It wasn't based on what you did. So this teaching was, at this time, called, uh, it had two different names, Solo Christo or Solo Christus, Latin for Christ alone. That salvation comes through Christ alone. And you might ask, well, how did the Catholics lose this important teaching of that salvation is Christ alone? The, the Bible teaches that, so how did they lose it? Well, there, there would be many steps leading to that, but of course one of them would be a bad hermeneutic. They, had, they didn't understand hermeneutics. Uh, certainly another thing would be is, is they had other things outside of Scripture. So they, of course they had the Pope, the, the teachings of their church, which became equal to Scripture itself and sometimes even greater. So they didn't, in other words, they didn't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible wasn't enough. We had to have other stuff. And then I, I can't help but think how many people during that time period were actually taught the book of Hebrews. 
Because if you understand the book of Hebrews, you, you come to the conclusion that Christ is superior. Christ is the best. He is preeminent and He is sufficient. Our faith must lie in Him alone. So let me introduce you to the book of Hebrews. Here's a helpful way for me to think about the book of Hebrews. Think of the book of Hebrews as kind of like a religious consumer's magazine. You know, you're familiar, I hope, with consumer's magazine. If you're not, I suggest uh, you, you become familiar with it. It's incredibly helpful whenever you're, you're looking to buy something. We use it all the time. We want to buy something. We'll go and check. What, what did other people have to say about this particular item? Whether it's a dishwasher or a phone or whatever it might be. In that sense, the author here has laid out for us the person of Jesus Christ and also what he has done. And then, and then they compare Jesus to the Old Testament religious system that, of course, was native to most of the audience and to which, apparently, as you read the book of Hebrews, some were being tempted to return to that Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, there's all kinds of things we do not know about this letter. For example, on the screen here, we, we don't know who wrote the book. In other words, we don't know the human author. Well, for sure, although Christians have, have debated this. Of course, the Apostle Paul is one of the, the ones that some people debate. But, of course, it doesn't really matter because we know the Holy Spirit wrote the book. And that's the important thing. The other thing we don't know is to whom exactly it was written. Uh, Hebrews is, of course, uh, referring to the nation of Israel. That's kind of general, kind of vague in a way. But we can piece together some things when you actually read the book. For example, we know the original recipients were facing some struggles, and we can read about that even here in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at... Verse 32, Hebrews 10, verse 32, the Holy Spirit says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So apparently, you can see there, as a result of their persecution, there was a breakdown that was beginning to occur. Some were, were, were wavering, some were questioning this faith in Jesus alone. And so you, you get verses like, uh, well, look at, Chapter 5, for example. There's many examples we could look at, but have your fingers ready to move around because today we don't have time to read the whole book, unfortunately. I encourage you to do so sometimes this week. Read through the whole book in one sitting. I've done it before a couple times, and it's taken me about an hour to read through the whole book of Hebrews. It's, a, it's an exercise well worth your time. But look at chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, 
not solid food. So they were living as Christians in some way, but the onset of this persecution was prompting them to waver. They were wondering if their faith was worth it all. (laughs) Think about it. Would you be questioned to waver and wonder if someone was coming and plundering your property and taking your house and your lands and and your possessions away from you, maybe your children, grandchildren? Would you be wondering that? They were wondering if this faith was worth all the trouble. And and so it appears from the various warnings that are issued in the book of Hebrews that many of these Christians were tempted to desert the faith. Now, we don't have time to look at all the warning passages in the book of Hebrews, but, but dotted throughout the book, there's a lot of warnings. Maybe some other time we'll, we'll have a whole message on those warnings. But today, just kind of want to encourage you with this glorious truth of who is Jesus and what he, has he done? Now, as you read through the book, I find it interesting that the writer doesn't warn them to come back to the faith by throwing a bunch of commands at them and say, I command you to, to, to not waver in your faith. Put your faith in Jesus alone. Trust in him, not the Old Testament sacrifices and all that sort of thing. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't talk about powerful points to try to encourage them to do that either. But he does focus on doctrine and theology. It's a wonderful book in addressing the fundamental questions of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So the writer knows that if his readers are going to endure through the persecution, then they need to believe these truths about Jesus. This is not something that's just going to be uh, fostered up you know, in their own strength. You, you can't endure persecution in your own strength. Fundamentally, Hebrews is going to address these two questions, which are interspersed with lots of warnings. And so we're going to just basically take those two questions today and, and, and have a few points that answer these questions. And so the first question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the second question we'll look at is, what has Jesus done? And so I hope by the end of today's message, you will wholeheartedly agree with the theme. And here's the theme, that Jesus is the best choice. Jesus is the best choice. So let's start with the first question. Who is Jesus according to the book of Hebrews? Number one, we're going to see here that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Now, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Clearly, that's a good place for us to start. Right from the very beginning, we see Jesus is the Son of God. There were other religious leaders that these Christians were tempted to follow. And it's likely they're tempted to follow them because they're not as socially awkward to follow as Jesus of Nazareth is. You see, following Jesus of Nazareth earned you persecution. But to say you were a follower of Moses or the prophets, well, that wasn't as socially awkward. And you need to understand, these leaders were not false teachers. In fact, the writer is going to tell us clearly they were servants of God. These were prophets of the Old Testament. These were God's angels. These were people like Moses is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. 
these were the people, the original readers of Hebrew were of the Hebrews were were tempted to turn to and and to follow. So you might ask the question, why not just serve these religious leaders? Well, they were not as exclusive as Jesus. Their claims weren't as embarrassing as the claims of Jesus. So who is this Jesus? Well, we see in Hebrews 1 here, he is not like the servants of God. He is the Son of God. In fact, he is the second person of the Trinity. And that's made very evident in the letter's first verses here. So let's read Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son today, I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. We'll just stop there. Clearly you can see here that Jesus is the Son of God, and because He is that, He is the best choice. He's superior to everything. Second, not only do we see that Jesus is the Son of God, in this book we see He is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Now you may be thinking the same thing as the original recipients of this letter, so let me help lead you down a train of thought here. You may be thinking, well, okay, that that clearly tells me that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's this long line of prophets and priests that just stretch back for centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries. Yes, you are right, there is a long line, a very long line. But the line is long because of a certain reason. You could probably take a guess why the line is very long. It's because... All of those people passed away. They all died. And that's why they make the genealogy. They died off. Just as the first high priest that God instituted died, so did all the others after him. And of course, I'm referring to Moses' brother Aaron. He was the first high priest, and all the other high priests that came after Aaron in his line died. And that's why there's this long line. And I want you to notice there's One verse that makes this very clear. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 23. Chapter 7, verse 23. 
the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Okay, do you see the point? Here's the point. The wages of sin is death, Romans says. They died because they were sinners. In other words, they were not eternal like Jesus. So in contrast to Jesus, uh, who <laughs> Jesus is eternal. Yes, his human body died when he was here on earth, but he didn't stay dead, did he? So unlike the Aaronic high priesthood, Jesus is eternal, and, and he is compared to a, an interesting fellow by the name of Melchizedek. So let's read about him in this book, and then we'll talk about him. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about Melchizedek and compares Jesus to Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, look at verse 9. Verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if at this point, you're, some of you might be wondering, who is Melchizedek? I'm sorry, we don't have time to go into great detail of who is this guy. Uh, the author of Hebrews mentions him, of course, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And the point of that is to demonstrate that Jesus is a priest forever. Melchizedek is a very mysterious figure. He's mentioned in uh, he's mentioned twice in the Old Testament. You can read about him in Genesis, as well as in Psalm 110. Information about Melchizedek's father and mother and his death are never actually provided for us in Scripture. By the way, that doesn't mean he didn't have parents. It doesn't mean he didn't die. It's just Scripture doesn't mention it. Uh, he is distinguished from other priests, according to Aaron's Levitical order. And here's the important thing to remember in all of this mystery. Okay, if you remember nothing else about the guy, remember that Melchizedek is a priest of a higher and an older order than the Levitical priesthood. You say, why? Well, if you know the chronology of your Bible, uh, Melchizedek was around the time of Abraham, Father Abraham, right? And so because Abraham was well before the time of the law, uh, you'd hopefully understand because Abraham, who was Levi's great-grandfather, he ended up paying tithes to Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews draws on those ideas in your Old Testament, and he describes then Jesus as eternal. There's this... In that way, there's a similar likeness to Melchizedek. So, anyway, let's, let's see what Hebrews says. Just a few verses. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 6, verse 20, it says, Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now look at chapter 7, verse 17. Chapter 7, verse 17. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? 
And now let's, so you understand, he's after the order of Melchizedek, different from the Levitical priesthood coming from Levi, tribe of Levi. So look at chapter uh, 7. Let's read a little bit more about how Melchizedek is described here. Chapter 7, verse 1. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, that's Melchizedek, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. We'll just pause there. In case you're wondering, what is the point? These passages here showing us that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and therefore an eternal priest. The old priests, what happened to them? They all died. Because the wages of sin is death, they had to die. But death couldn't hold Jesus because he is not a sinner. He's perfect. And so he now can continue to intercede on our behalf as our great high priest. Which, of course, Hebrews shows us that in places like chapter 7, verse 23. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, because Jesus is eternal, that makes him the best choice. He is superior. He is preeminent. Well, not only is Jesus eternal, we also see Jesus is perfect. Jesus is perfect. Now, all of this information might bring up a question in your mind. Here's, here's a question that I've thought of. Why did those, per, those priests pass away while Jesus lives eternally? Why? It's because all of those priests were sinners. They all sinned against God. And so they had to pass away. Look what chapter 5, verse 1 says. Chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Notice verse 3. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sins before he could even offer sacrifices for the sins of Israel. 
So in contrast to these priests, we see in Hebrews that Jesus is perfect. Nowhere do we ever see Jesus having to go and offer sacrifices for his own sins. He is human, of course, as well as divine, which enables Jesus to be a sympathetic high priest on our behalf. That's one of those wonderful truths we see in Hebrews, like in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. My friend, do you understand? Jesus, the great high priest, understands what you go through. He understands the temptation. He understands. Now, now when he was tempted, he did all that without a sin nature, of course. But he understands your temptation. He can sympathize with you. Although Jesus is truly human, he, of course, is different from us because he never sinned. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. My friends, read Matthew 4. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Satan threw everything at him. He gave him his best shots. And Jesus bore the brunt of Satan's shots and stood firm, perfect, sinless through it all. Well, these other leaders whom the Hebrew Christians were tempted to follow were passing servants who pass because they're all sinful. But Jesus, on the other hand, is eternal. He is perfect and He is the sinless Son of God. And for those reasons... Hebrews clearly shows us that Jesus is the best choice. Well, we've seen the first of the two fundamental questions in the book of Hebrews. This first fundamental question is, who is Jesus? Now we want to look at what Hebrews says about the second fundamental question is, then what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? And it's, I think it's important we go in this order too, by the way, because... What Jesus did for us would mean nothing if Jesus wasn't the Son of God, if Jesus wasn't perfect and sinless and eternal. What, what Everything He did in dying on the cross, being buried and rising from the grave on the third day would mean nothing if He wasn't who He was. He had to be God and man to be the mediator. And he had to be perfect in all of that. So let's see what Jesus has done according to the book of Hebrews. First of all, we see Jesus offered a permanent sacrifice. You understand, there had to be a sacrifice for sin. God designed that from the beginning. Had to be a sacrifice for sin. We see it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, don't we? Genesis chapter 3. God designed it that way. Adam and Eve sin, and what's the first thing God does? He had to kill an animal. God made the perfect sacrifice. Not Sorry, not the perfect, but he made the first sacrifice, killing those animals, or a animal at least, 
to cover Adam and Eve's naked bodies. And in that, there was a, there was a picture of what was to come. So we see Jesus offered a permanent sacrifice. Well, these other leaders were not only impressive for who they were, you need to understand the, the significance and the temptation for these Christians to go back to that. See, they were impressive for what they had done as well. Angels and Moses and the prophets are very impressive. They brought covenants spoken by angels. They were faithful over God's house. They descended from unbroken lines of high priest. And, and that, you remember it stretched back a long, long ways. And so they regularly offered sacrifices, and these were well-ordered, impressive sacrifices. We read about it in places like Leviticus. And so at this point, we need to ask a very important question then. What were these sacrifices? You'll see a picture on the screen here of kind of what they did in Old Testament times. See, these sacrifices were the repeated offerings of bulls and goats. They were costly. Death was accomplished. Blood was shed on their behalf to cover their sin. It was a very ornate, very detailed offering. Uh, you can read about that in places like Exodus and Leviticus. God had a lot of instruction that went into those sacrifices. Now, do you know why these sacrifices were repeated? A lot of animals were killed over those centuries. And the answer is, though they were constantly repeated because the priests were imperfect. The priests were sinners. And all an imperfect priest can do is offer an imperfect sacrifice. Hebrews 5 talks about this. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3. says, Because of this, he, the priest, is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. He had to keep doing this. And what was the result? Well, the sacrifices the priests offered were unable to remove that stain of sin. It couldn't get to the heart. couldn't ultimately deal with it, as Hebrews 10 verse 4 says. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. <laughs> well, some would ask, well then, if, if it's impossible for the blood of an animal to take away sins, then why did God keep telling him to do this? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. I'll leave you hanging. So, please understand this, though, that in, in contrast, we see here Jesus offered a permanent sacrifice that never had to be repeated because Jesus is perfect. Jesus is the sinless high priest. His sacrifice was once for all. So what did he do? Jesus offered himself. He gave up his life for us. Look at chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 26. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting 
that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's be clear here. The other high priest came. They died. They went. They continually offered the sacrifices of animals like bulls and goats. But Jesus, who is the eternal and perfect Son of God, what does He do? He comes along. He gives Himself once, and it was forever. And we can praise God for that. Jesus never has to do it again. Never has to do it again. And this is one of the problems of why there needed to be a Reformation starting in the 1500s. There had to be a Reformation because within Roman Catholicism, they had this this special service called the Mass where Jesus was continually offered. Every time the Mass took place, the the, the priest or, or whoever it was, the Pope or whoever it might be, was continually offering Jesus every time they did that. And it frustrated the Christians. It was heresy. Because Jesus offered a permanent sacrifice. And because He did, He is the best choice. Number two, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus offered an effective sacrifice. And that's one reason why it was permanent. He didn't need to keep doing it because it was Effective. Now, why did these priests have to continually repeat the sacrifices? We just read in Hebrews that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the answer is they were not effective. They were not effective. In other words, they didn't work. However, they were never meant to work, okay? All those things that God prescribed, particularly in the book of Leviticus, your third book in your Bible, was to to show the ineffectiveness of those. So the repeated sacrifices of animals would only make the worshipers externally clean. They only made them ceremonially clean. It didn't actually deal with the sin inside. They did not make them clean before God. They were ceremonial reminders, if you will, of spiritual truths that were to come, which is why they had to be repeated. Look at chapter 10, verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They had to keep doing it. Animal sacrifices couldn't remove sins. It couldn't actually cleanse your heart. It couldn't make you at one with God. In other words, there was no atonement made with God as a result of those sacrifices. They could only point toward something else that was better. You understand that, I hope? 
So the sacrifice that Jesus offered, not only was it permanent, not only was it only once, but it was effective in dealing with the inside. His sacrifice makes God's people truly clean. Look at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So you might ask, If these sacrifices were then ineffective, in other words, since they didn't work, why did the Hebrews have to make all those sacrifices? Good question. The answer is, all of those Old Testament sacrifices pointed toward Jesus. They were pointing toward particularly the work of Jesus Christ. They were pointing toward a a new and better covenant that God made with His people I guess one of my favorite verses that shows us, chapter 8, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 5. It says in chapter 8, verse 5, They, those sacrifices, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, he's talking about that Old Testament tabernacle and all the ceremonies that would take place within it. But notice it's only a shadow. It was only a copy. It wasn't the real thing. Those sacrifices couldn't take away sin. They could only remind people of their sins. Now, if you look at this little... PowerPoint demonstration here for you. you. You notice if you're standing in light, you have a shadow that's cast by your body, right? Is that shadow you? No, your shadow is not you. It's just a representation of you, right? But it's not really you. And that's exactly what's going on here. All that stuff you see in the Old Testament was pointing to the substance, to the real thing. It should cause us to look to Jesus. If it it didn't cause them to look to Jesus, then they're looking at the wrong thing. Because they couldn't take away sins. They're just reminding people of their sins. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. 10 verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
So again, there's this contrast between that stuff and Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice effectively makes people perfect. It's effectively making them holy. It's making them set apart from their sin to God. It's making them unique. It only had to be offered once. Look at chapter 10, verse 12. Chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Someone here might be thinking, well, you know, I'm just not convinced. <laughs> if you're one of those people who's, who is somehow not convinced by this argument, let me ask you this. How has Jesus' sacrifice proved to be effective? Has Jesus' sacrifice proved to be effective? And the answer is, His sacrifice has proved to be effective by its powerful effect in the cleansing of His people. It has cleansed His people for, for centuries now. And so if you're a Christian today, you are actually a testimony to God's power. You're a testimony to the power of Jesus' sacrifice to cleanse from sin. And so as our lives change, we show the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We're showing that Jesus really did arise from the grave and conquer Satan and conquer sin and conquer death once and for all. And so because Jesus Christ offered an effective sacrifice, He is the best choice. He is superior. He is the preeminent one. And so my friend, if please understand something. If you don't believe that Jesus is the best choice, if, if you are putting your faith, your trust, and your belief in anything other than Jesus, then you don't know this reality. You, you, you do not have Jesus as your high priest. You do not know Him as your Savior and Lord. And my friend, when you die, you will not go to heaven. You will go to hell. You will spend all of eternity in hell because you have rejected Jesus as your perfect an eternal and effective sacrifice. My friend, also be wary here, because there are many in this world who do believe in Jesus. The problem is, like Roman Catholics who also believe in Jesus, they have added their good works. They've added their system to Jesus. So it's Jesus plus my system equals salvation. Uh. Wrong. It doesn't work that way. Please understand this. It's Jesus equals salvation. Only Jesus. Now, there is one of the solas of the Reformation. A sola means only. It was Jesus Christ only. It was faith only. It was grace only. So, Roman Catholics believe in faith. Roman Catholics believe in grace. The Roman Catholics believe in Jesus and faith and grace and, and other things. 
The problem was, it wasn't Jesus only. It wasn't grace only. It wasn't faith only. It was my faith plus my good works equals being saved. Do you see the problem? You can't add anything to Jesus. If you do, you're lost. I hope I've made that clear. Clearly, the book of Hebrews and other portions of Scripture make that clear. It has to be Jesus. It can't be anything else. And so you come to the exhortation part of the book. And what an appropriate way to end by exhorting us to look to Jesus. So, my friends, look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. Because it's, it's, it, you see the word therefore? It's basically saying because of all these glorious theological truths about Jesus, here's what you must do. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So my friends, look at verse 3. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. My friends, are you doing that? Are you continually looking? It's in the continuous action here. Continually looking to Jesus through your whole life. Only Jesus. Through your whole life for faith. He is the one who is the founder and perfecter of your faith. So, this is the choice the writer of Hebrews is presenting to you. So my friend, what are you going to believe? What are you going to act on? You've been presented with the truth. Now what are you going to do with it? Well, May God give us the grace to believe this and act upon it. Let's pray.